Good morning. And again, whether you're worshiping with us here in the building or online, we are together. Last time I checked, the Holy Spirit is omnipresent. Meaning what? Well, Tiffany, come up here and share the, the depths of omnipresence. That he's everywhere. And so as we worship together, be excited about that and who our God is and what he's doing. And I realize uh, in a very difficult time in a lot of ways in our nation, one of the things we're going to talk about next week, the next attribute we're going to look at is that God is good. Because there are a lot of people questioning that very thing right now, the goodness of God. We just sang about it. But scripture clearly teaches us that our God is good. And that we as Christians, look at your handout, home, we talk about who our dad is, this series that who's your daddy, and we've looked at so many incredible attributes, and one of the things that when you're studying the attributes of God, one of the things that jumps out at you is how interrelated all of them are, is that God is, because he's all of his attributes, simultaneously, perpetually, eternally, always, continually, with no end, he's all of them Simultaneously, he's always love, he's always holiness, he's always omnipotent, he's always omniscient, he's always in control of the lights. Well, I don't know, maybe not. Not in this building anyway. The lights have a mind of their own. And so we'll just, we trust our God. That's what it means. That's why you've heard me say the theme of all scriptures, Habakkuk 2.4, the righteous shall live by faith. What that means is we trust the God who's proven himself to be God, to be trustworthy, not a blind leap in the dark, but a channel of trust in the God who is real. So what we're going to finish today looking at is that our God is self-existent, is that he doesn't, he doesn't need anyone else to give him meaning, purpose, fulfillment, is that he's self-existent. But just prior to getting into that, you go ahead and look for, if you haven't already, turn to the book of Colossians chapter 1. It's a couple of things I want to mention to you. Number one, July 12th, that's our target date to reassemble, see each other, come back, doing 9.30, everything we've been doing, groups and children, all of us come back together in the building on July the 12th at the regular hours, 9.30, 10.45, we'll be here in the building. We are, again, we're going to be as safe as we possibly can be. We're going to disinfect everything in advance. We're going to disinfect it between hours. We're going to disinfect perpetually. We're going to have hand sanitizer. We're going to wear masks. We're going to distance. So July 12th, we come back together here as, as the body of Christ. That's our target date. Uh, things could happen with, with the health department. We'll see what happens between now and then. But that's our target date as of right now, July the 12th, back to regular hours regular services. Now, let me say something to you. I mentioned it briefly last week, but I want to make sure that we're on the same page heart-wise. I realize that there are some people who are still uncomfortable and don't want to be out in a public setting. You know what? That's completely understandable. We're, we're fine with that. No one, there's no judgment, there's no looking down our nose at you, there's no, there's something wrong with you. If you still need to worship at home with us online, do that. Absolutely do that. Continue to worship with us that way. 
if you're, you want to come, but you physically are uncomfortable and, and can't wear a mask, no one's going to tell you you're not welcome in this building. No one's going to say to you that we're not, as I mentioned last week, we're not going to be the mask police at the door and tell you you're not welcome. You're loved. And we are a family. And what we will do is, if, if I'm claustrophobic, but I can wear a mask and, and I'm okay. Some people can't. I've literally talked to people this week who physically just can't breathe with them, uncomfortable with them. They have a problem. So, absolutely, you're loved, and we want you to come be part of our worship services together in small groups and all that we do. But we will practice distancing, and we'll have hand sanitizers, and, and we're going to be as safe as we possibly can be. Having said all that, the bottom line is this. Mentioned it last week. I will continue to mention it because it's a it's just a burden on me. More people that I talk to. We have a church, both campuses. We love each other. We stand for the truth of the Word of God. Uh, as I've told you many, many times from this pulpit, from the moment we opened it 14 years ago, that it's always we're going to speak the truth in love. And. What's happening is Satan is using, using this pandemic and he's using all kinds of things that are going on in our nation, whether it's from a racial perspective or whatever it might be, to drive a wedge between Christians. And I'm telling you, it's a fervent prayer of mine, and I'm asking it to be a fervent prayer of yours. Don't let that happen. We can agree to disagree about masks. That's not an essential of the faith. I wear a mask because there are other people that want me to wear one. I can do that. That's called, I'm free in Christ not to wear one, but I wear one because there are other people that need me to wear it. I can do that. Give you a, I've shared this example, and God used it to, to teach me this principle years ago in studying it. Timothy, at age 30, allowed Paul to circumcise him without anesthesia. As a 30-year-old man, you ever talked to anybody that was, was circumcised as an, ever talked to a man that was circumcised as an adult? My dad was after World War II when he came back. He was, he was in his late 20s, and he said, son, that, they'd have to kill me before I'd ever go through that again. He fought World War II. Why did Timothy allow Paul to circumcise him as a 30-year-old man? He allowed it for one reason, so the Jews would accept him and he could witness to them. Here's the point. If, if Timothy can allow himself to be circumcised without anesthesia as a grown man, I can wear a mask. I can. Now, if you don't want to, again, that's between you and God. No, it, it, it's an agree to disagree thing. It's not an essential of the faith that Jesus is God or the Bible is true. We're not going to divide over this. We're going to love each other. Please, you pray for each other. You love one another. I was sharing my dear brother Dick Hunter yesterday. We were just talking on the phone, and he encouraged me so much by one simple statement. Randy, I pray for you and the elders of our church every day. I'm asking all of us to do that. Pray for each other. Okay, now the other thing I want to mention, a couple of things, quick things, and then we'll get into Colossians. Tuesday nights, 6.15, here in the building, I believe in Rhiannon's office, 
that we're going to have prayer time. You just come, maybe in the lobby, maybe in Rihanna's office, just come and go starting at 6.15, as long as people are coming. You just know, there's not a group where you've got to stand up in front of anybody and give your testimony and explain all the, the uh, meanings of the types of Christ in the Old Testament. You don't have to do anything. We're just going to come and pray for each other, pray for our nation, pray for leaders. You think they need our prayers? Oh, man, do they ever. Pray for our local leaders, our, our, our state leaders, our, our national leaders worldwide with the pandemic and all that's going on in our nation with, with the, the racial stuff that's going on. They need our prayers. Our God, he, is, he hasn't stopped being God. What we want to do is, is line up with his will and seek his face. So Tuesday nights, 6.15, just come and grow, go anytime you, you feel the building will be open on Tuesday nights, 6.15. And then finally, I mentioned it last week, we'll mention it again, and I know some people that uh, did not hear, did not see or did not hear. Um, we have hired a, a student pastor for both campuses. He's full-time. Uh, he will be the student pastor over Bartlett and Arlington. He's got a great team of people working with him, helping him, assisting him, ministry team. His name is Cameron Ames, A-M-E-S. Cameron Ames and his wife is Madison. And Madison's already been involved in, in, with the help group. And Cameron and I and uh, Mike Clay, we spent a lot of time together. And we've been talking. And, and we're just excited. July 15th will be his first day on staff, and he's already, uh, he's, he's come to a couple of events and met some of the kids, and I know uh, through social media, he's already in touch with some of them, so you're going to love this young man, and you're going to love his wife, and uh, I think I told you, shared with you last week, at the very first time we were talking, and I was gonna, just saying to him, man, I'm old enough to be your father, and I had to stop, I said, I'm old enough to be your grandfather, but he is uh, a tremendous, uh, we, we believe, uh, man that God has sent us and he and his sweet wife both. So you pray for them, Cameron and Madison Ames. All right, turn to Colossians chapter 1, verse 15. What we're looking at this week is what we began to look at last week is that our God is self-existent. Last week, look at verse 15. Verse 15 of Colossians chapter 1. This is what we talked about last week. He, Christ, the Son of God, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. And we're not going to go back and exegete that passage again. Just want to make one point. That God, our God is the owner. Firstborn over all creation. He owns all creation. Why is that important? Because he reveals to us the attributes of God we've been talking about. Creation reveals those. We'll talk about some more of that today. And it reveals God's authority. He owns it. He's sovereign over it. We've talked about the sovereignty of God. And he is the, the, the master, the owner of the universe. So as we walk through this today, I want you to keep that in mind as we transition into number two on your handout, if you have a handout. But look at verse 16. Not only is he the owner of all creation or all things, he is the creator of them specifically. Look at verse 16. So Paul says it in a different way. With further emphasis, for by him, Christ, all things were created that are in heaven, that are on earth, visible, invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created through him and for him. But one of the things you're going to notice as we walk through these two verses, and you go back and you read the context of the book of Colossians, is this little phrase, all things. It comes up over and over and over again. Paul is emphasizing there is nothing that he does not own. 
There's nothing that he did not make. There's nothing that he is not sovereign God over. Why is this important? We talked about this before, this phrase, but it really helps me to reiterate it. I mentioned it last week, I think. That the fact that God, specifically here, Jesus, our Savior, Jesus is the Christ, the Savior, the Messiah, the Savior of the world, he is also the creator of all in the universe. This is what's known as, theologically, the ultimate apologetic, meaning this. This is the ultimate defense that our God is God. We talked about well, why is that important. If you reject Jesus of Nazareth as God, if you reject him as the one who came and died for your sins so that you could be saved, be born again, and know God, and go, go to heaven when you die and have peace, joy on earth, you can reject that. We're free moral agents. We have the right to make those choices volitionally, I do not accept Christ as Savior. Many of us, we could go around the room in our own families. We have people that we are related to, siblings, uh, others who are not Christians. They choose not to. They choose to say no to that. We all do. So then the ultimate apologetic is, tell me where you came from. You don't believe in the Bible. You don't believe in Jesus. Tell me where you came from. Now, many of them will say to you, I believe in evolution. Pray that they do say that. Because all it takes is a cursory reading of evolution, going back, just looking at it, understanding a little bit about it, and then looking at the universe. Just You don't have to be a naturalist. You have to be a, a, an incredibly bright scientist. You just got to be able to read a little bit and pay attention. And you'll realize evolution does not fit the evidence. So the ultimate apologetic is, where'd you come from? And many, many scientists now in, in, in the intelligentsia in our world are admitting that the universe appears to have been made by something or somebody. They will not say it's the God of the Bible because they refuse to surrender to him. But they will admit the ultimate apologetic. We just, just didn't spring into existence in some primordial slime somewhere and ultimately became something as sophisticated as you. It doesn't make sense. It doesn't fit the evidence. Let me just give you four quick implications of the theory of evolution, the alternative to creation by and large. There's some other alternatives, but they're even worse. So if you say you believe evolution, here are, the, here are four basic implications of that theory. Number one, evolution destroys any and all inherent moral law. If there's no God, if there's no creator, then there's no divine moral authority. We as human beings can justify and do whatever we choose to do. Is that not the society we are becoming? It absolutely is. Moral relativism dominates our culture now. That you do not have the right to tell me that's wrong. That there's such a thing as a, an absolute moral authority. Yet we all, there's so many things you can say about this and we're not doing that today. But it's easy to prove that people believe in absolute moral authority. If you say, I believe in moral relativism, what you're saying is, again, first implication of evolution, that there's no moral law in the universe. I, have the, I am the ultimate in the universe. I choose 
what's right for me. You choose what's right for you, which is true. That's what we do. But are there any things that are just absolute morally wrong? The logical extension of that thought, which is what Darwin's theory would have led to, is that no, you cannot tell me anything is wrong. So let's say Randy and Mary go out and adopt an infant baby, and we bring it here to church to, for Parent Dedication Day. And someone here decides, I don't like that baby, takes that child, and is about to chop that child into pieces in front of everyone. What would every one of you in the building do? You'd do anything within your power to stop that, wouldn't you? Including taking the life of that person if you had to. Because they were about to murder an innocent child. We all know that's what? Wrong. Well, how do we know that? Because built within us is an inherent moral conscience. Where'd that come from? If you believe in evolution, you wouldn't have that. Where'd it come from? It came from the God who made you. Second evolution implication. Theodor Dostoevsky said, if God is dead, everything is justifiable. You do what you want to do. Second, evolution destroys any and all intrinsic basis for self-image. For example, children, from the moment they come into our lives as Christians, in church, and in our settings, And I love children's ministry because it's so important what they do, preparing generation after generation to follow the one true God. What's one of the most important, one of the most important and one of the first things we teach children from the moment we get them in our homes and in our church, what do we say to them? God loves you. God made you. you. You are important to God. God so loved, loved you so much, he sent Jesus to die for you. We begin to teach them the basics. And it begins with yourself. And we don't call it self-image. But what you're saying to them is, you are of great value because God loves you. God made you. Evolution doesn't give you an inherent self-image. We teach children, you're valuable, you're precious. Remember the, the little songs you used to sing? Precious. In his sight, Jesus loves the little children of the way. He loves them. He loves them all. We do. And we want them to know how much God loves them. Here's what one common textbook in our culture today says about this. Quote, to be sure, both butterflies and humans have descended from a remote common ancestor, most likely a small worm-like marine animal resembling a flat worm. Is that going to encourage your kids? You're a flat worm. I've been called worse. But if you believe in evolution, what you're saying to them is, you're no better than a butterfly. You're no better, you're just a flat worm It's a little further along. But what God says to them is, you're unique. Nothing else in the universe is like you. I made you in my image. That's why this ultimate apologetic is so important. He's the owner 
He's the creator of everything. George Gaylord Simpson, a leading evolutionist, put it this way, wrote, quote, In the world of Darwin, man has no special status other than his definition as a distinct species of animal. He is akin, not figuratively, but literally, to every living thing, be it an amoeba, an amoeba, a tapeworm, a seaweed, an oak tree, or a monkey. End quote. That'll fire you up to go out and live your life, won't it? You're just another amoeba. Third implication of evolution. It destroys any and all eternal purpose in life because once you die what that's it that's it what God says to you life on earth is just a dot on the eternal line that runs to infinity of life if any man is in Christ he's a new creation old things are passed away all things have become new in him you have life and life eternal evolution Offers you nothing beyond the grave. Finally, evolution destroys any and all hope in the human heart. Any and all hope in the human heart. Many of you know who Michael J. Fox is, and you remember he was diagnosed with Parkinson's disease years ago. And I was reading his press conference when he announced it. And you know what he said? He said, in the end, this is it. We There's no hope, and we die. You've heard me say many times, what's my favorite word in the Bible to describe what it means to be a Christian? It's the word hope. The word hope. And it means confident expectation. We have something to grasp that we're confident in that will carry us through a pandemic, that will carry us through riots, that will carry us through horrible times, will carry us through death and beyond, to eternal life because we believe in the creator of the universe and his name is Jesus Christ. We trust him. We've surrendered to him. We're Christ's followers. So what does it mean that verse 16, he's the creator of all things? Look at the context. Because he is creator, back to verse 15, because verse 16, he's the creator, he is, verse 15, the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. He reveals God to us, and one of the ways he does that is through creation. We've talked about that. So what Paul is doing here is answering the Greeks' philosophers' teaching on what was called cause, the cause for everything. They had a primary cause, an instrumental cause, and a final cause. Jesus is all three things. The plan for the universe was his. The power to create it was his. And the purpose for us, we're going to see, was his, to glorify him. R.C. Sproul's put it this way. There are only three possible explanations for anything that exists now. It's either self-created, it's eternal, or it is created by something that is eternal. In other words, self-creation is not logical I can't do it, but the eternal one did. I'll give you just a few stats, and then we're going to move on. Because creation itself is pure testimony 
to the power, the knowledge, and the wisdom of Jesus Christ. The diameter of our sun is 864,000 miles, 100 times that of Earth. 1.3 million Earths would fit inside our sun. Our sun is one star in our galaxy, the Milky Way, and the Milky Way alone, which is one galaxy in the universe, the Milky Way alone has hundreds of billions of stars, and there are millions of galaxies. As you're beginning to see the vastness of your universe, the intricacy and the detail of it, the orbit of the Earth and the rotation, the rotation of the Earth on its axis are exactly precise to the point where human life could exist. Any change, any change on that rotation of the axis or, or the orbit, and we would either be too hot or too cold for life to, human life to exist or life to exist on planet Earth. It's that precise. Any change in the atmosphere, any change in the mass of the proton of the gases in the atmosphere would, be, would destroy the hydrogen atom in it. The result, you couldn't have life anywhere. Anywhere. There's a star called Antares. It's 60,000 times larger than our sun. If the sun were the size of a softball, the star Antares would be the size of a house. That's how big it is. If the sun were the size of a beach ball and it put on top of the Empire State Building, the nearest group of stars would be as far away as Australia is from that Empire State Building. There are more insects in one square mile of rural land than there are human beings on the entire earth. One square mile. Earth travels around the sun about eight times the speed of a bullet. Now back to verse 16. Look at verse 16. We're going to walk through this and be done. For by him all things were created. that are in heaven, that are on earth, visible and invisible, thrones, dominions, principalities, powers, all things were created through him and for him. So Jesus is the sphere in which creation occurred. He's not apart from it. He made it. The laws of creation are found in him, in his very person, because he owns creation. He's a source of everything. Motive, Desire, energy, everything it took to create, Jesus is the source of that. And notice again, verse 16, all things. Very simply, in the original language, all, I'm not going to say it the way I want to because Mary's watching and I'll get in trouble. All things in the original language mean there are no exceptions. There are no exceptions. He spoke it into existence. And it's not just the material universe, the stars, the galaxies, the planets, and the things we love to look at, the oceans, the sky, nature itself, the material things, but he also, things in heaven. Everything that's not earth, all that we are amazed by and we're constantly exploring and can't discover hardly anything about it as a human race, he spoke and was the, the, the genesis of all of that. The two natural divisions that we as human beings understand, you got the heavens and you got earth. Notice, visible, verse 16, invisible. Visible, invisible. What we can see, 
which is, as we just saw a moment ago, small amount, minuscule amount. What we could see, but then all that we can't see. One of the ways you share this with somebody, they say, well, we don't believe in God. You don't believe that, that God exists anywhere. So you can say, well, how much about the universe do you know? And even our most sophisticated people who know the most, how much about it do they know based on what we just looked at? Just a simple looking at the facts. How much about the universe do they know? Almost nothing. So you're saying, as you're witnessing to someone, in all that universe that we don't know anything about, you're saying there's not a God out there somewhere. It's not even possible. When all the evidence says that something made this, it didn't happen by accident. Great theologian put it this way. When Jesus looks at his universe from his exalted throne at the right hand of the Father and he sees the great galaxies whirling in space, the planets and the people upon this planet, and all the minute details of life here, including the, ta- the details of our individual lives, there's nothing that he sees anywhere of which he cannot say, mine, mine. Dutch theologian Kuiper said that. Jesus looks at it and says, it's mine. And then he chose to become one of us and die in our place because we're that significant to him. That's why you tell little children, Jesus loves you. He died for you because he loves you. Now back to verse 16. Not only by him, through him. He's the agent, mentioned that a moment ago, all of it. But then the one I really want you to focus on for a moment in verse 16 is the last two words. It's for him. The universe exists to glorify Jesus Christ. The Bible says, you are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they exist and were created. The tense of this, look at verse 16 a little closer, I want to make sure you see this. For by him all things were created. Then the last statement, all things were created. Two different tenses, and I don't want to get too technical, but it it really is a great message here. The first one, verse 16, for by him all things were created. That's Greek aorist tense, means at a definite moment in time, some people call it a big bang, God spoke and there was a universe. It leapt into existence. At a definite moment in time, God created. Second created at the end of verse 16, through him and for him, these things were created. That's the perfect tense. And what that means is, at an aorist tense, at a definite moment in time he created it, at a perfect tense means it exists and it will continue to exist because of the creator. By him, through him, for him. He spoke it into existence and he keeps it existing. Why? Because he is God. Why do we worship him? Because he is God. Why do we love him? Because he is God. Another theologian wrote it this way. 
The Christian faith is constantly under attack in the secular world. In the recent generations, the weapons of criticism have been aimed chiefly at the idea of creation. Secularists understand that if they can refute the biblical concept of creation, they will have dealt a mortal blow against Christianity and against all religion. Critics are cynical about the idea that the universe is created by God, a personal, transcendent, immutable being, saying that such an idea is unscientific, illogical, and a myth. Now verse 17, just for a moment. He is before all things, and in him all things consist. What does this mean? Not only does Jesus own creation, and not only is he specifically the creator of all, through him, by him, for him, he's the agent of it, he's the power, and it was done to glorify him, that we get the privilege of glorifying others by saying we, the creator is my God. But he is, verse 17, this is so important for us to understand grip as Christians. He's a sustainer. Verse 17, he is a sustainer of all things. He's before them all and in him all things consist. The universe is made up of matter. Matter is very simply rapidly moving electrical particles around primarily it's just space. What holds all of that together? You got gravity, you got quarks, you got electromagnetism. Guess who created gravity, quarks, if we call them, and electromagnetism? Who created those principles? Same one who created the universe. It's part of it. Our God is God. And notice verse 17. He is, number one, before all things. He existed before Anything else existed. Without turning in your Bible, I got a feeling you know you'll know this one. What's the first, what's the first three words in your Bible? Table of contents? No. In the beginning. You know what it means how you say that in Hebrew? Not but you know how you say it in Hebrew? Before there was time, before there was time, what's the next two words? God created. Jesus is eternal. Yes, Jesus of Nazareth lived 33 years on this planet. God the Son is eternal. In the beginning, before there was anything else, there was God. We talked about that last week. In John 17, Jesus said to the Father, glorify me with the glory which we had before the world was. Just me, you, and the Holy Spirit. In the beginning, before there was space-time continuum which God created for us, there was God. That was it. Then he created. By the way, in Hebrew, he created out of nothing. He spoke it into existence. Fast forward to John chapter 1. John's great gospel written to prove that Jesus is God and that through him you can have life. How does his gospel begin? In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. And the Word was God. By him all things were created that, do, that are here. He goes on to say. In the beginning, John 1.1 1, 1, in Greek is before there was time. What's the Word? 
The Word was with God. The Word was God. Then you drop down to verse 14, John 1, and it says the Word became flesh, Jesus of Nazareth, and dwelt among us. And we beheld the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. The eternal, self-existent God in John 1.1, the tense is always, has been, eternal. John 1.14, the word became flesh, is aorist tense. At a definite moment in time, he stepped into this planet. Philippians says he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. He volitionally, as we mentioned a moment ago, we are volitional beings and God chose to become one of us. Why? Because he loved us. That was his plan to redeem us. We couldn't redeem ourselves. So he existed. Back to verse 17. Before all things. Before all things. C.S. Lewis put it this way. He, Christ, is over creation as a king and a sovereign, not subject to it or part of it, but intimately related to it. It's his. He made it. To reveal himself to us, he came and manifested God to us. Self-existent. That's why Jesus, if you read in Revelation, says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I see the end from the beginning. He's outside time. He sees everything at once. Part of his attributes. He's transcendent. He's immutable. All the things we've been talking about. He's self-existent. I hope it excites you and light your fire about what it means to be a Christ follower. That's why it's so important. This ultimate apologetic. There's no other explanation for where you came from except God made you. That fits the evidence. Jesus said, before Abraham was, I am. I am the self-existent one. Then back to verse 17. In him all things Consists. That's where you get the term sustainer. He sustains it. Doesn't break down. Electromagnetism, gravity, shifting on the axis. The reason the universe doesn't fall apart and break down is because Jesus holds it together. And then the Bible tells us that a point in time is coming in the future when it's all going to melt with fervent heat when he no longer sustains it. And you get a new heaven and a new earth with no sin, no, no tears, no mourning, no sorrow, no death. That's what we have awaiting us as believers. That's why the day we die is a good day. We go home. We go to paradise. We go to a place without sin. The universe stays together because Jesus sustains it. Verse 17, in him all things consist. Just holding an atom together, some incredible, we don't even understand it. What's the incredible power that holds an atom together? Kept in its present state, continually. The Bible tells us it's the person of Jesus Christ. I want to read you, and then we're going to be done. This quote, I'm going to share a story with you, and then we'll be done. I was reading a sermon on, on this subject, and this is how the pastor summed it up. Personally speaking, I take great comfort in the fact that God is self-existent and not dependent on his creation. 
There's nothing he needs from me or you. He has no area of lack or dependence. That being the case, our self-existent God is capable to graciously supply us with everything we need. Why is that comforting to me? It's comforting to me because it reminds me that when I'm praying, I'm not praying to someone with weaknesses and fallibilities. I'm praying to the one who sustains what he has made. I'm praying to the one who doesn't require external forces to care for him. I, on the other hand, am completely dependent on the gracious hand of God to supply what I need. When I acknowledge that and admit that he is the source of life and sustenance, I can experience a healthy sense of rest, knowing that I don't have to do his job for him. I can rely on him. He is my peace. He is my provider. He is the one who promises to care for me. A belief in an accidental universe with no compassionate oversight and no merciful provision does not produce a sense of rest or peace. It forces us to become overly self-reliant, then anxious when we are forced by necessity to accept that we have limitations that prevent us from doing all that needs to be done or caring for all that needs to be cared for. Many of the causes people have pledged their lives to in our generation stem from their lack of faith in God, the self-existent, uncaused cause. He alone is God. Why are we here? I want to end with this. Stephen Jay Gould, who was a Harvard paleontologist, Guardians with eminent authority on how life began says, quote, we exist because one odd group of fishes had a peculiar fin anatomy that could transform into legs for terrestrial creatures because the earth never froze entirely during an ice age because a small and tenuous species arising in Africa a quarter of a million years ago has managed so far to survive by hook and by crook. We may yearn for a higher answer, but none exists, end quote. I'm here to say Stephen Jay Gould does not know what he's talking about. If that's all that I had to live for, I'd be really worried. Just where our culture is. But what God says, I created you. I love you. I'm holding you. And I'm reminding you right now, you need me. Trust me. I'm self-existent. Everything else was caused. I created. I own. I love you. Would you bow your heads, please? So, Father, as we close out our time together today, I think we should be comforted. I hope we're comforted by the fact our God is self-existent. That this amazing attribute, you don't need me, you don't need someone else to help you. You allow us to be part of what you're doing through the Holy Spirit, through the person of Christ. We can enter into a relationship with you where we call you Father. We can be your children. We could go out into our world and say there is an answer beyond yourself. There are certain things you can't control. We're experiencing that right now as a world that a virus is owning us. 
And you simply say, here's an opportunity for you to show them who God is. That we trust you. We love you. And then we want to say to our world, Jesus Christ is the answer to your future. We thank you for self-existence. Because by that it means that we're not God. But we have a God who is there. We love you, Lord. We commit this time to you in Jesus' name. Amen.